Welcome to the Once Upon a Leader in Africa podcast with George Nudu. We invite you to listen to influencers and opinion shapers narrating their experiences from their leadership roles in Africa, from the world of business, community development, government, corporate, social enterprise, among others. We will glean from their good, bad and ugly side of their leadership journey and be inspired to overcome adversity, to pursue success against all odds, to be a great leader and many other lessons. Welcome to the podcast and here's George Nudu. Hi Caesar, how are you? I'm well, George. Thank you very much. Karibu sana. It's been a while, man. It's good I'm, to see you again. I am delighted to see you again, George. Yes, it's good. It's good. So, Caesar, tell us, who yeah. is Dr. Caesar Mwangi? <laughs> it sounds like a very simple question, but uh, <laughs> we might be... Uh, let, me, let me try my best to keep it simple. Okay. Caesar Mwangi is a very simple guy. That's the first thing. Who likes to keep things as simple as possible. But first of all, I'd like to start by saying that uh, I, I see myself, first of all, as an ordinary Kenyan who has had um, well, the privilege of being educated in this wonderful country, in public schools for that matter, and uh, you know, doing the best I can. I'm not the most brilliant guy, but I've managed to pass uh, most of the necessary examinations and to go on and to do my best to study postgraduate studies. But most important, I'm just a basic ordinary Kenyan who is very proud to be a Kenyan, who loves this country, loves this continent. And uh, I'm also very privileged to be a family man. I think that's also very important because a lot of uh, my identity is linked to my family and my role as a father and a husband, which I think is very, very important. So I'm a husband of a, a very fine lady called Anne, and uh, we've been blessed with five wonderful children. Three of them are young adults, two of them are a bit younger. And uh, I relish my role as a, well, my ambition is to be a very good husband and a very good father. That's one of my most important ambitions. I'm still trying because I'm not yet there. I have to keep trying every day. <laughs> uh, and then apart from that, I'm a bit of a, I would say I'm a professional individual because I have work to do. And my professional career has been rather varied. And if I'm to start at the very basic level, my first degree was in economics, right? Uh, so I see myself as an economist. But interestingly enough, I was rather disillusioned by neoclassical economics because I grew up, I studied economics at a time when the economy of this country was doing very poorly. And I kept asking myself, why am I studying economics? So many economics, economists have been produced in this country, yet the economy is doing very poorly in the 80s and the 90s. So I somehow felt uh, there's something wrong if we're being trained to improve the economy of the country, and yet it does not seem to be doing much good. And all these people have been trained for all these years. So when I left uh, the university, I, I was a bit disillusioned by economics until I read a book called Small is Beautiful, a study of economics as if people matter. And that rekindled my interest in economics because it talked about people and their well-being. So I call myself uh, 
an alternative economist, right? And that sometimes is referred to as uh, a development economist or a welfare economist or a Buddhist economist or a Gandhian economist. These are all branches of alternative economics. And uh, right now I'm very interested in a field called the economics of mutuality. But when I finished university as an economist, I went into accounting and finance and auditing, which again was not very interesting until I got into management consultancy, which was about improving business practices. And I worked with a company called Deloitte & Touche in the consultancy division. And I believe that is where I got my aha moment because I enjoyed the work so much because it involved solving problems. And the more problems I solved, the more excited I became because I would then meet people who told me, man, you came to our business and you guy, you did this assignment. And after that, the business improved. And it was great to see people delighted in the work that I had done or we had done as a company. So I realized uh, even as I go into management, my focus will be on improving whatever I do or whatever organization I work for. So I would call myself now, um, for lack of a better word, I enjoy turnaround, turnaround work in management, where a business organization is not doing very well. I just love the challenge of turning it around. I remember when uh, Uchumi Supermarkets went down, and I saw an advert at one time for a new CEO there, and I actually applied for it. I actually didn't get the position at that time. But I thought this would be a great opportunity to to contribute to a business that is not doing well and help improve it. But that is what my orientation has been. And after working as a consultant, I actually studied, I went and did an MBA in South Africa. And uh, that was just to hone my skills and management issues and to understand all the aspects of management. Uh, and after that, I joined Deloitte in South Africa, but I then started my own consulting practice to give me the, the leverage to do what I love most for myself. And I did that for almost seven years in South Africa before I eventually left uh, to go to Ethiopia for two years and then to come back into Kenya for, uh, that was way back in 2005, if I recall, yeah, 2005. And uh, when I came back, I actually then ended up in corporate Kenya where I became the CEO of Sassini at that time. And I ran a few other businesses in between uh, after Sassini in the energy sector. And I also ran another business. Uh, I was involved in uh, the ICLM group where I was a group chief executive officer before I then eventually came to the business school. Uh, so professionally, that has been my very short, interesting journey, uh, rather varied, but extremely interesting. Uh, most important, it was characterized, it's been characterized by many, many uh, situations where I have left the place I went a little bit better than I found it. And that always gives me a lot of gratification. In a nutshell, that's who I am. That's what I've done in very much brief. Eh? There is a lot of uh, adventure in many of those spaces I've been. Yeah, thank you. How that captures it. <laughs> it captures it very well, Caesar. Yeah. And and really, I've just watched you progress, you know, because I've known you for quite some time. It's, I've been quite fascinated, you know, you just yeah. progressing and now ending up in the Strathmore Business School as executive Absolutely. dean. Absolutely, so, yes. Tell me about this new role of yours. What does it entail? Okay. Actually, in fact, this role is just, what can I call it? It's a godsend. First of all, let me say, to be in this role, it's a godsend. And when I look back on all the years I've worked in different places, 
and and uh, for myself and for others, I find that perhaps I was being prepared for this role. Because this is a role where we have a very clear vision, which is to, to spearhead the transformation of Africa. The business school vision is literally to spearhead the transformation of Africa. And the mission states, we will, we will do that by developing ethical transformational leaders, ethical transformational leaders. So it is so clear and it is, it is right up my alley because one, I have always wanted to be an ethical transformational leader. I have tried my best wherever I've gone to be an ethical transformational leader. It is obviously not easy. You have to keep on trying and pushing and all sorts of roadblocks along the way. But I am now in the place which I have to create the environment, motivate the people to focus on this vision. And I mean, it's just, it's just unimaginable what this experience is like because it's it's like an amalgamation or a pre- from the preparation of all that I've done. This is where I am at the right place at the time that I was supposed to be here. So it's been wonderful. In the business school, it is a very varied portfolio that I have because we start with undergraduate programs where we have young people being sent here by their parents and their guardians to do business courses at undergraduate level. That's a big, uh, especially the Bachelor of Commerce and the various combinations of Bachelor of Commerce, accounting, finance, HR, entrepreneurship, supply chain management, um, financial services. So there's a whole range of programs. But I feel the, the responsibility of transforming these young people into the best business people beyond there when they finish their degree. So... Apart from the academic knowledge we give them, we also have to give them what we call human formation as, as people. In fact, we always say that our work is not dish out certificates at the end of the four-year period that they're here, but it's to create a better human being who can be a good professional out there. Naturally, this is not an easy, <laughs> straightforward process, but we try to do that, and I oversee that in the business school. And we do that through various ways, again, which I oversee. For example, the mentorship programs where these young people are given a mentor and they have to go for periodic, they, they have to meet their mentor periodically. We have special programs here in the business school. There's a program called the Maisha program, which focuses on life skills for the young people. We have uh, work-based learning where they have to go out into the field and work somewhere. We have community service where they have to spend, I think, about 225 hours in community service serving underprivileged people or in some community service. And all this is supposed to build their character. I mean, so it's a fascinating menu that we have to offer with the, with the hope that at the end of the four years, the young person will come out not only as a professional who understands professional content or subject content, but as a good human being who will serve humanity, who will serve wherever he works, who will be a custodian for future generations because they want to do well by transforming their environments positively. In other words, an ethical, honest, transformational leader. It's not easy, but that's the undergraduate level which you're trying to do that. So you can imagine that is one area of focus and we call that the academic focus, academic programs. Then of course we have the postgraduate programs which are the masters in business administration, the masters in uh, business administration for healthcare we have a big focus in the healthcare area here. 
we have masters in master of management in agri business agriculture is a big focus area because africa kenya is agricultural we have public policy again a very important area to shape public policy properly now these are all the masters programs and of course the master of commerce and again we want professionals who have who come through these programs to be great leaders out there ethical transformational leaders wherever they go Again, we have to ensure they come in, they learn, and they go out in the same way with the right orientation as human beings. So again, another very beautiful place, another very beautiful role to oversee. And then, we, of course, we've got the, the executive education programs, which are very interesting because we have executives. I think we graduated last week, we graduated about 2,500 executives from our executive education programs. And it's fantastic because we have people from junior level management, mid-level management, senior management, to the CEO level where we have programs for them. I mean, it's just amazing the, the, the range of programs we have. And we have people who come start at the bottom and go right through over a range of maybe even 10 years. And they come out and they are really well sharpened as professionals. And they go out to their businesses and they transform them and they are ethical. And that's what we want. Because we know without that, then there's no foundation for growth. So again, I will see that. We have PhD programs where we have almost 140 PhDs who have come through us. Some of them are in different stages of finalization of their programs, and they're here. Again, people who have an ambition to really do a lot of do research and, and try and apply that in the world. Very interesting. Now, because we want to be a global business school, a globally competitive business school, we have numerous partnerships throughout many universities, very good universities. And uh, we have engagements with them on periodic basis, comparing notes, uh, collaborating on different projects. Uh, so that's another very interesting part of my work uh, where I have to meet and visit some of these people and they come and visit us. And we have many partners. We work with a lot of partnerships. We have a whole partnership department where we set up partnerships for mutual benefit with other schools, with donors, with project partners, etc. We also have a big portfolio of research uh, and development projects okay research projects for different areas of research we have a, a number of very good research projects in healthcare management we have others in entrepreneurship we have a range of other projects which are looking at passive building for for example for um, people with disabilities we have capacity building for religious sisters and these are all based on projects and and and, and partnerships that we run and we say we don't leave anybody behind. So we, we encourage different partnerships to make sure that many more people benefit. Uh, so this is another very interesting area that uh, we are involved in in my work here. So what can I say? I, I also teach in some of the programs. Eh? In some of the executive programs, I, I have occasional classes. So I go to class and I teach some courses in leadership, in ethical leadership. I do some of those courses myself. I teach. And uh, again, that is very exciting for me because then I get to meet some of the executives, some of the students. I have regular student barazas where I go out and meet the students in class. And that is exciting where we, we I do some presentations on our vision and mission, and then we have some engagements on the challenges they're facing. I mentor another, a number of students personally, myself. And that's again, very exciting because I see these as my own children and I want them to do well. So I'm, I'm regularly engaging with them uh, in opportunities that I have in those mentoring sessions. So it's a varied mix, <laughs> a varied mix of activities, all designed to get people to somehow take their responsibility seriously, 
be people of character and contribute to their country, to this country and to the continent at large as best as they can. So that is the vision we have and everything is geared towards that vision. Yeah. You know, my mind is just wondering, I'm thinking to myself, how does Caesar do all these things? My goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, quite, yeah. quite a load of work. So for you as a leader, yes. what are the skills and the abilities you have had to demonstrate just to balance all those things? Yes, and remember, yes. you're, still a, you're still a husband and a father. Absolutely. In fact, I have to manage that very well. Actually, you're very right. Because one of the, one of the key things that I have to do is, is balance it. Eh? Make sure I balance and I don't, I don't uh, overdo things at work and then I neglect things at home. One of the things this year that has happened is I've had to travel a lot to introduce myself to the partners. So that has been a bit challenging, as you can imagine, because then I'm, I, I spend about a week away from home once a month or so. But thank, thankfully, these trips are not more than a week, eh? Monday to Friday, usually. So it's not too bad. Uh, but balance is so critical. Balance is so critical. Now, the whole, all these activities are quite varied. But number one thing which I have also set out to do is to have a very good team of people I can work with. Uh, and uh, I have some direct reports, of course, who report to me directly. And I always say, so long as you have a good team working with you in the main portfolios that you have to manage, then at least you have visibility through those direct reports. That's one. But the second thing I, always, I also say is that it is very easy to be isolated in the position you are in if you're in charge of an institution. Very easy to be isolated. So I also have a very basic principle where I have to have my ear on the ground and engage with everybody at every level, at least selected people at different levels. That way I know what is going on on the ground. And sometimes you could call it an intelligent system, <laughs> for lack of a better word. You, you have to have a feel of the ground. And uh, I, I believe this is, I think, one of the most important uh, issues that I've, I've learned as a leader, that you cannot remain at the top and not have uh, a feel of what's happening on the ground by being in touch with all those people on the ground. Over the years, I discovered something which I have applied consistently. And if you ask anybody I've worked with in, in the organizations I've worked, I apply this, this um, approach. Okay? And this approach is based on, on one simple fact. And that fact says that leaders are generally overrated. Right? Leaders are considered the most important people in an organization when they are not. <laughs> they are possibly the most visible, but not necessarily the most important. Right? And this may sound a little controversial. But what I tell the people here, when I'm away for a week, the business school continues working. But if my people on the ground are away for one week, we will not be able to function. You understand, George? Now, who is more important in that situation? <laughs> if the students and executives come here and my course administrators are not in place to administer that, to receive those students, to give them their, their course outlines, to give them their course packs, the business school grinds to a halt. So I tell the people, you guys, are the VVVIPs, the very, very, very important people. And I can only be a VIP, one V. Eh? <laughs> so I have what we call an internal title here, George. It's called the Chief Support Officer. And I tell them, I'm here to support you guys. I rely on you people. Deliver what needs to be delivered because I can't do it 
and I cannot know what you do. And in fact, most of you know more than I do. <laughs> so my approach, I have an internal title called the Chief Support Officer. And these guys don't let me down because they know. I have told them, you do what you need to do, run with it, and I will support you. If there are issues you need to resolve, feel free to reach out to me. I'll find a way of help of resolving them as a support officer. Okay? Yes, my role is important, but their role is also extremely important. And I want them to know that so that they can go out there with confidence, solve the problems that need to be solved without necessarily looking for somebody to pass the problem to, because I have confidence that they know more at that level and they can solve those problems quicker than we can if we're in a bureaucracy. You understand? Now, we have another value here, which is very important at the university, at Strathmore University. That value is called subsidiarity, which says problems are best solved at the lowest level where they occur. Because if we don't do that, they will be passed on upwards in the structure and they will take longer to solve and our stakeholders will suffer in the process. And this is the only way we can do things quickly, do things properly, and be a bit more agile, especially at this time when there's so much, so many things going on. We need to be much more agile. So I find this approach works best. People are saying we need to be agile. Now, we have always needed to be agile every place I've worked over the last 20 years. Eh? And this word is coming up now, but I have always realized that. And I've always said, let me empower the people at the level where they work and let them know that they are very important at that level and I can't do what they do there. I can learn what they do. And in certain places, I've actually gone down and worked on the ground with them which I always try to do so that I understand what's going on, but actually, it would work much better. So in that way, I don't have too much stress. Eh? When I'm gone, things work, right? I've got good direct reports who are supposed to manage things if I'm not there, so it's okay. So as much as I'm busy, we fortunately have a good team, good team going, good attitude. Always, and I always tell them, let's focus on what you're trying to do. Why are we doing it? Because we want to transform Africa. Why do we want to transform Africa? Because it's important to transform Africa. And, what's a, and how do we want to transform it? By developing ethical transformational leaders. If we do that, everything we do align to that, we're home and dry. So we have partners coming in here. They say, we want to do ABC with you. Acid test is going to help us transform Africa. Is it going to help us develop ethical transformational leaders? Then we can look at the partnership. Because eh? many people want to partner with us. So... We try and check against some criteria. Yeah? If we are aligned, we work, we work together. So that's how I, 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 I try to work. And of course, there are some basic things that uh, we try to put in place. We have to be cheerful. Nothing is too serious. Let's treat each other with respect, you know, enjoy ourselves. Titles are not that important to me, so it's fine. You don't have to call me the executive dean. It's okay. I'm your chief support officer. Just call me Caesar. You don't have to call me doctor. It's fine. Well, some of these things are in institutions and some somehow uh, I try to change them, but it's okay if others don't want that change. It's fine. But I try to take things easy <laughs> and not be too uptight. And that way we enjoy our work, isn't it? It's good to have fun. Yes, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I remember yeah. I remember the other time even when you talked, you said the same thing when you're yes. CEO at ICA. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just supporting, supporting. Challenges. Yes. Challenges. Yeah. Talk to me about right, your challenges. Right. Well, one of the things that I've realized is that there will always be challenges. Why? Because change always needs to take place. 
and there'll always be some resistance to that change. When you have, uh, the Japanese call it Kaizen, eh? the whole idea of continuous improvement, eh? it means there's no space for comfort zone. So it doesn't matter how good your business is, your company is, or your business school is, you cannot be complacent and say, we're okay now, let's cruise. <laughs> you can't say that. Now, because of that fact that you need to keep on innovating, refining things, improving things, getting feedback, sometimes it's not very pleasant, and trying to do something about that feedback, it means one of the main challenges is obviously resistance to change. Yeah, resistance to change and continuous improvement. And uh, in literally in every place I've gone in as fairly new person, I have found this particular challenge. How to navigate towards a better place for the institution and bring everybody along can be a little bit challenging. And this boils down sometimes to individuals have some interest, individuals who are comfortable, individuals who don't like disruption, individuals who don't buy into new ideas, individuals who don't buy into new people coming in into their space because they've been around all this human condition. Eh? And I say, because, because of the human condition, which is uh, varied, people come with different baggages, different experiences, different cultures, different outlooks, different fears, different ambitions. It's, it's a bit of a messy life situation in every place you And I've come to accept it. So you'll find that uh, to wade through this, all these complexities, and to bring everybody along can be a little bit challenging sometimes. <laughs> but it's very exciting as, as, as people see that, of course, everything you're trying to do is for a greater good, for lack of a better word, where we will all be better off. In the process, of course, some specific privileges may not be accessible, which have been enjoyed in the past. So that leads to a little bit of fear or resistance. But getting people to buy in into the vision and into the kind of things that need to be done is sometimes a bit of a challenge. The other thing, which I think is very common in institutions such as this or in these kind of roles, is the fact that time and money are limited resources. And as you know, economics is the science of scarcity and choice. So I always have to put on my economics hat, scarcity and choice. Scarce resources, scarce time. How do you prioritize the scarce time? What are the priorities? You've got to learn to say no to certain things, which sometimes doesn't come naturally. In fact, sometimes we want to do everything. We want to please others. So the challenge there is to choose when to say no. You can't take that meeting. You can't do that partnership. You can't take that trip which you've been invited to and they feel it's necessary that you go. So the challenge of, of disappointing people, for lack of a better word. Eh? <laughs> uh, there's also the challenge of 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 the scarce resources being applied as optimally as possible. Because, of course, naturally, there are many needs, but there's limited resources. So we've always got to find a way of making sure we budget properly, allocate resources to the most important areas. And that may not be agreeable with everybody. There may be other priorities which people feel are important. So a bit of a challenge to make sure you convince uh, people. The other challenge is, I believe, the challenge of of what can I call it, meeting the expectations of your stakeholders. Huh? 
I have worked in, in, in organizations which have very high expectations from the public because they are good organizations. ICLR was a very good organization, naturally very good, very high expectations. Strathmore University and Strathmore Business School has very high expectations from stakeholders, from the parents, from the students, from the public, from the regulators and everybody. Now, to, to meet those expectations to the level expected can be a challenge because uh, sometimes expectations are way too high, perhaps because of the perceptions we've created in the market. Uh, but we have to continuously keep pushing ourselves to meet those expectations and 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 then going overboard literally to make sure we meet those expectations so that we don't disappoint, we don't spoil our reputation. Uh, so we continuously keep trying. Of course, sometimes we may not entirely meet an expectation and we've got to go back and explain, apologize perhaps, learn from that experience. Uh, that is quite humbling, of course. But again, we have to we have to do this. These are challenges we face every day. We have um, huge expectations from, from, from parents who want us to transform their kids, oh, especially at undergraduate level. Wow. And uh, we find that the world has got so much, so many messages going to them, misinforming and having a huge negative impact on them, that by the time they get to us, they are a little bit confused. Yet the parents expect us to create some miracle. <laughs> we'll try our best, naturally, but it's not easy. And this is one of the interesting challenges we faced. And we've realized we need the support of the parents. So we, we regularly call parents for meetings here and we talk very frankly about their responsibility as parents. As much as we do the best we can, we cannot make miracles. Eh? So whatever we're trying to do, we explain to them. We want people of character, people who understand what is important in life. They are able to have self-discipline, self-control, focus on their work, etc. And we expect the parents to pass the same message and expectation to their young ones. The parents actually are very good. They come for those meetings. But we have also designed parents' program to teach parents how to engage with young adults effectively. It's called the EYA, Engaging Young Adults. We are very excited about this because I don't think there's any other university after one course in the continent with this kind of program. Uh, when we started off, it was a little bit slow, but the demand has increased tremendously as parents realize how invaluable this unique education is for them. And they come here on Saturdays, you know, and they come to class. And I teach some of those classes myself. And I can tell you for free, by the end of that class, I have several parents waiting for me to talk to me about some issue that they picked up in the class and they'd like to take forward <laughs> and see how they can, they can manage it. And we've had very interesting engagements with these parents, and I really salute them because they have realized that they suffer from something called unconscious incompetence, which many people don't realize. Yes, you may be a parent, but you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know that you don't know. You understand? <laughs> so we, we, we try and uh, raise their awareness on their incompetence, and then they have a desire to want to know more. And when we see that shift, what I call we call conscious incompetence, it, it just it just snowballs into self-improvement and trying to be better parents, these young adults. And we know the outcome will be positive, whichever way we look at it.
So these are some of the challenges that, that we face uh, as an institution, as a business school, which uh, we keep on grappling with. And, and of course, many other uh, minor ones, day-to-day uh, challenges. But these would be the main ones. Well articulated. Well, Amazing. Mm. Wow. I like yeah. that program for parents. Yeah. Because you know what, Caesar, the truth yes. of the matter is the way the family was created. Yes. You know, that was the, yeah. the, the, the breeding ground of good citizens. That was the place. Exactly. And, and, and exactly. We bring them well at home so that they can be good citizens in the institutions, exactly. in the in the yes. marketplace. And it is exactly. good. And it's true. Exactly. Many people people are not equipped as parents. You know, that's a, yes. that's a yes. reality. Yeah. And we can already yeah. see it, the effect of what the kids are doing. You know, yes, you cannot, yes. you can see that. So, good, good, yes. keep up that good yes. work, yes. sister. Yes, keep up you that put it very well. Actually, the family, uh-huh. in fact, the family is the is the first point of education. It's not the school. Uh-huh. And the family was blessed with two teachers who are different, <laughs> a male and a female, masculine, feminine, man and woman. You understand? And those two bring different different uh, combinations of education to the, to, the, to the young people. One is a bit more sensitive, one is a bit more forward-looking, and all this is brought to the education of those children. Now, when those teachers are absent, you know, then you have a bit of challenge, and we experience a challenge here when the students come here and we see them and we realize it's from the background. So we also have a um, program which, which we run. Apart from the parents' program, we have a program which you call the Program for Family Development, eh? And this one is open to the public. And it's for parents who want to come and learn about being better parents. And we start off with a program called Married Love, what it means to be married. Very, very nice program. I've done it myself. And I teach on that program also. So what it means to be married, even before you have children, you can come for that program. When you get children, we, we have a program for parents of children from zero to three years old, from three years old to seven years old, from seven to 13 from 13 to 18, you know, because all these are different stages which parents are not aware of. You understand? Now, this program is open to the public and we have members of the public coming through word of mouth and taking this program here. Uh, We also run this program in specific schools, okay? They invite us there and we run the programs for parents on the weekend. Again, I teach on some of those programs myself. And uh, we find that this is um, the program family development which is running at the Strath Business School is is unique but extremely impactful. We do a session for executives called Strategy at the Home Front. <laughs> no, very nice session. So you come here, you're, you're, you're on the advanced management program, you're a senior executive somewhere. You have a you have a module called Strategy at the Home Front, and you're encouraged to come with your spouse for that session. <laughs> yeah. So we say you may be an excellent executive, CEO, or C-suite, chief finance officer, whatever. But remember, you have a home. And if you don't have a strategy for that home, my friend, you may lose out. Eh? So we, we blend, yeah, we blend all this and try to combine for a wholesome development, eh? wholesome development. And then we then also bring in the, on, on a lot of our programs, we bring in a coaching component. So a lot of these executives come in and we allocate them coaches. Okay? And they get several coaching sessions. Choice of their own, professional, personal, whatever, life, you know. And again, we find very good traction because then we give them an opportunity to, 
to reflect on some of their blind spots, some of the opportunities in a coaching session. Again, really helping them to be better. And many of them actually bring up issues from a personal point of view in their homes, which they're helped by the coaches. Eh? So it's very beautiful. Eh? Yeah. You deal with, you know, and with your, first with your studies, I know you did your PhD in leadership. Uh, you, I mean, you used to be a leadership consultant, even used to be on yes. the national TV talking about leadership issues. Now you're in that yes. place where you are pushing that same agenda. So for yes. you, even as you look at leaders and you saying, having worked in Ethiopia, been in South Africa right now, even moving, I've been seeing you on social media going to various countries, looking at leadership within Africa. Right. And, and right. you know, as you say, you're passionate about this continent. Yes. yes what yes. do we, what, what do we need? What do we, what kind of leadership uh, do we need just to fully exploit all that God has endowed us with? Absolutely. In fact, this is one of the passions I have. And uh, you might be aware that I, had, I, I set up in 2011. I registered uh, an organization and started it off uh, with very humble, humble uh, time because at that time I was CEO of Sassini and I realized by the time I leave this place, I need to do a little bit more in the area of leadership. So I set up what we call the Center for Personal Leadership. And the whole idea behind that was to read and, and understand concepts around leadership and try and disseminate them to organizations and to individuals as best as possible through that center. And the reason I called it the Center of Personal Leadership is I realized you cannot talk about an organization without talking about an individual. You cannot talk about change unless you start talking about change in an individual. So it's personal to begin with. You understand? It's personal. So that is where I, I, I started off. And this came about because when I was in South Africa, I had a very interesting experience, a very difficult experience working in, in that country with people who call themselves leaders. Okay. Uh, after my MBA, I worked in one in two organizations before I set up my consulting practice there. And what I found is people call themselves leaders, but they didn't inspire people around them. They didn't, they didn't uh seem to understand that they have a role to, to sell a vision, a good vision, and inspire people to follow. So I realized most of them thought, most of them thought they were leaders because they had positions and titles. <laughs> so there's this whole confusion between a title and being a leader. It's totally different. Having a title is not the same as being a leader. And then I discovered that leadership is not for only those with titles. It's for everybody. Everybody can be a leader. In fact, we are all called to leadership. And this understanding came from some readings, some book I read called uh, Virtuous Leadership by Alexander Harvard, who said everybody's called to leadership. He said housewives, tailors, uh, captains of industry, we are all called to leadership. Why? Because we have a sphere of influence. The housewife has a sphere of influence in her home. <laughs> you understand? So she's called to leadership in that space. Now, if everybody understood that they have a sphere of a sphere of influence, whatever they are, then everybody can be a leader. Now, when you have a title and a big responsibility heading an organization, it simply means that your sphere of influence is bigger. 
is bigger than others. So this whole realization has to start with a person realizing at a personal level is that I have a sphere of influence and I can exercise my leadership in that sphere of influence. And if I do that, the more responsibility I get, the wider my sphere of influence becomes, the greater the possibilities for impact I can have. Yeah. So that is my whole um, evolution in my understanding of leadership. To the point where I registered the Center for Personal Leadership and I started doing some work there. Now, uh, I also had a very interesting experience in South Africa. Apart from experiencing title-based leadership, for lack of a better word, which was very toxic and very uninspiring, for lack of a better word, I developed a migraine headache at work because of the negative environment. You understand? Very painful, eh? And I worked in organization for two years, and I developed a migraine headache. And one day, as I was working, and I was a senior fellow, eh? very, I was fairly young, but I was quite senior. I was the second, I was the in, in charge of finance and corporate services in that organization. It was called IMSA, Independent Mediation Service of South Africa. As I worked, a pensions consultant came to see me, and I was contributing to a pension. And he, he went through my contributions and told me, you're contributing a good sum, but if you increase your contribution, after 35 years, you will get an increased payout of so many millions of rands. I think it was 35 million rands or something after 35 years of working. And I looked at this guy, I thought about my migraine headache, and I thought to myself, will I survive for 35 years in this environment with a migraine headache, get that pension? I said, I might have died by that time because this headache is not, it's not a very good way of living. Eh? <laughs> And the reason I had that headache was the culture of the organization, the environment, which again depends a lot on leadership. So I realized leadership and culture are two sides of the same coin. And a very famous writer called Peter Drucker, who wrote a very, a very seminal book called The Practice of Management many years ago, I think in the, in the 50s, literally, said culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I developed an interest in leadership and culture with the sole objective of enabling leaders to create good cultures where people can thrive and enjoy their work because they come there every day and never get a migraine headache. <laughs> but it's so interesting the way life works. After I left that organization and I decided to start my own consulting practice, I walked into a second-hand bookshop in Johannesburg and I got a book there called The Adventures of Leadership by a fellow called Hap Klopp. Hap Klopp was an American and Hap Klopp is the founder of a company called the North Face, which people might know because North Face has got a lot of outdoor equipment, rucksacks, products for mountaineering, etc. Hap Klopp left an American organization to start that business, which was his passion, because he loved outdoor activities. He said, I'm going to start manufacturing outdoor equipment. He left it for the very same reason I had got a migraine headache, because the organization was so toxic. <laughs> now that affirmed my decision. If I walked, I walked in that second-hand bookshop and that's the book I picked and that was the story I read and I had just done the same thing that Hartlop had done, left because of toxic environment. 
I realized that I've made the right decision. And uh, my migraine disappeared. <laughs> and I developed my passion to consult and help organizations. I then remember also reading a book, uh, a very nice book by Charles Handy. Some people may know him, but very, very good British uh, consultant and writer who worked at, uh, at the London Business School. And he wrote an essay called Organizations for Masochists. Again, he talked about toxic organizations where the people who work there, including the leaders, work like masochists to make life difficult for people. <laughs> and again, it affirmed, this is a problem. <laughs> I tell you, that experience and then the books that destiny led me to convinced me that this is my life's work. I got to do this. <laughs> I don't want anybody to ever suffer like I've suffered. <laughs> I want to create good organizations. I want to create nice work environments. People come and enjoy. But where people are productive and the organizations grow and they create more employment and they have good cultures and good leadership and people are connected and they have fun and they're not afraid of the boss. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's my view of leadership. That's my view of organizational life. And that's what I've tried to do every place I've gone. Obviously, with some misunderstanding here and there, because this is not common sometimes. Eh? Sadly so. But many people have understood this is the best way to work. And this is what I want to do. And even as I do my teaching, I try to disseminate these ideas. I write a few articles here and there about these ideas, etc., etc. I want to write a book. I'm in the process of doing that about these ideas. Eh? Hopefully, they become bit more commonplace and we will have a happier workforces, we'll have more productive businesses, we will create more employment, we'll develop our countries, people will be happier and there'll be less migraine headaches at work. Eh? But also, I, I also experienced um, very interesting assignments in South Africa around this whole idea and again it reinforced my, 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 my beliefs and my bind into this whole concept. South Africa was struggling with, with division at work, toxic workplaces. And the European Union funded a project called the Investors in People Implementation Project. Investors in People. Investors in People is a British standard for managing people in the workplace. So they adopted that standard in South Africa. And I was selected uh, from, from the pool of consultants to be among the first uh, investors in people, assessors for South African organizations. And uh, in the process after, after being trained as an organizational assessor under the standard, I had to visit and assess almost 30 organizations in South Africa. And it was horrendous. It was horrendous. You know, people were suffering a lot. I had suffered, so I understood. But my, uh, leadership and management was not aware of that suffering. That's one. And the organizations that we assessed that were doing well and eventually met the standard was because the leader was aware of their role in creating a healthy work environment, a pleasant work environment, a good work environment where people thrive. Again, the, the, the data is very clear from, from my work at that time. Leaders have got me more aware. You're not just a boss there with a big title, the best office in, in the building, the best car, the best parking spot and you never connect with the people, you have no time for them, and you don't care about them, no. There's a different way, leadership. You've got to be a human being 
accessible, encouraging, motivating. You know, people can reach out to you when they have challenges. And you're not the great guy who knows everything. You must admit you don't know everything and you rely on other people. And you've got to be humble enough to say this. Eh? Otherwise, you are just a title holder at the end of the day. So this is my, I mean, this is my, 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 my journey informed by many of these uh, different adventures which I bring to the business school and to anybody who, who wants to listen. I'm happy to share. But I think it's a better way of doing things. Eh? I think it's a better way. And stress is less. You enjoy yourself. You enjoy the people you work with. And the day you leave, you walk, you walk out with your head held high and you're left with many friends out there. I tell you, man, Caesar, when you come to visit us, man, we miss you. It was great having you around. That's great. You have many friends all over the place. <laughs> yeah. That's, I hope, gives you a bit of my, my leadership philosophy and conceptualization based on the journey that I've had. Okay. And this could also be called servant leadership. You know, whatever we want to call it, but you serve the people, eh? you support the people. And uh, in that way, they support you. You look good at the end of the day because the people are doing the best they can. We always say they're even willing to take a bullet for you because they believe in you and they trust you and they want, they don't want to let you down. You know, they don't. And they're your friends, you know? Yeah. So it's been great. It's been great. So you talk about when you leave. And I, when you said, yeah. you know, when you leave, you still have friends. So what legacy do you want your legacy to be or look like? Now, legacy is very important. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think we need to talk. We need to always have, as Stephen Covey says, the end in mind. Eh? Uh, and, and, and what you leave behind is the legacy at the end of the day because there'll be an end. Yeah. Now, I thought about this over the years. And one of the things I realized is the conceptualization of our lives as a window of opportunity. Our life is a window of opportunity. When we are born, the window opens. When we die, the window closes here on earth. Yeah. So it's one big window. But within that one big window, there are many small windows of opportunity. Many small windows. When you go and work in a place for three, four, five, six years, that's a window of opportunity. When you, when you run a business, that's a window of opportunity. When you study, you're taking a program, an MBA, a PhD, that's a window. So you've got all these varied windows of opportunity that you're involved in throughout your life, right? And at the end of the day, they will open and close. <laughs> when you're with your family, when they are young, that's a window. When they become teenagers, that's a window. When they are young adults, that's another window. And all require different approaches. But those approaches have got to be intentional. Right? Intentional. Now, your final legacy will be the sum total of all these windows of opportunity. Because all those places, people will say, there was a guy called Caesar. There was a guy called George here. Yeah. You know, he was my coach. That was the window of opportunity. You had this guy you coached for three months for argument's sake. That was a window of opportunity to impact that person. And when that window closes, you move on maybe to another, another place or coach other people. You open other windows. But what will that person say when the window closes? George changed my life. I'm so glad, George. I spent time with George and he was my coach. And after he left, I made certain decisions from the coaching which 
change my life in my family or change my life in my professional career. That's a legacy. Now you're going to have all these windows of opportunity opening and closing and people saying, he changed my life. He helped me. You know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm not going to change the world, but I'll change somebody's world for sure. Eh? That's why I like to look at it. <laughs> That's a legacy I'm happy with. And we start, my friend George, with a family. Yeah? I think that's one of the most important areas. Because that's one area which you've been given for life. Eh? From the time those kids are born, the time you get married, you've got that window with that family. With professional work, you've got different windows. They open and close. But with a family, it's literally a lifelong. lifelong. What are you going to leave behind? What you leave behind is going to be passed on to another generation because you left something good behind, something good with personal for another generation, and something good to the next generation, and something good to the next generation, which means you will have intergenerational impact. Like you can't believe. That's a legacy, which is so important. Profession is very good. I'm not, I have nothing against it, but the family first. Eh? I think you've got to take care of that as a legacy. So I'm hoping I've passed on something to my children, my sons, and my daughters which will live well beyond me into the, the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I think that is very important. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. You know, and, and you see, as you're talking, uh, you notice when people die and they give the tribute, you know, it's a legacy statement. Those are yes. legacy statements. Yes. Absolutely. 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 And you know, I, I'd been a pastor for about 15 years and, I never did a burial where people came with certificates, titles, car keys. Right. You know, say, you know, oh. this disease has got, you know, Jack Tech has got this title. This, no, it was, oh. what did you do to them? What impact? Exactly, exactly. That's the legacy. That is a legacy. What impact? Was it positive? You, you made them mm. a better person. You taught them something that was good for them. And sometimes... It can even be difficult to tell them hard truths which no one has told them. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. And you've got to have the courage to do that. Mm. Because sometimes good is the enemy of what is right. Yeah? Yes. We want to be good, but we don't do the right thing because we want to be good. No, you've got to tell them. This yeah. is this is this is not all. You've got to try and change something. Yeah. Yeah. So we keep trying, and uh, by God's grace, I think um we we will live beyond or our deeds will live beyond us. Yeah. Uh, when we're devoted to doing what is good, especially for others, and in the places that we've been planted, eh, in those windows of opportunity. Um, yeah. Going beyond, and I, I, I tell my colleagues here, actually, actually the, the faculty here, as much as you're a PhD holder and you are teaching okay, a technical subject, remember, you are also a parent figure to these young people. Mm. Right? And some of the things that you do as a parent figure will live on well beyond even the technical knowledge you've passed on to these people. Yeah. Okay? Because they will pass on that to their children. Because mm. you spent five minutes in class to explain to them a few things as a parent figure would. And what are those few things? That genuine success is not about accumulation. Maybe no one has ever told them that. Mm. No? There's yeah. more joy in giving than in receiving. No one has ever told them that. But if you just spend three minutes and tell them that and they grasp that, because you told them, 
and they start practicing that, you change their life. So true. And maybe their own parents have never told them, eh? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I tell the faculty, you have a wonderful opportunity to impact these people beyond the technical teaching that you need to do. Yeah. And we, we, they try, and we have some very good faculty here who try to do that very well. And many of them are also mentors eh? of these young people. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your heart, your passion, yeah. your expertise in leadership, and, well, and just hearing, yeah, and, and hearing what you're doing at uh, SBS. It's really a great yes. joy. Your yes. final, yeah. your final goodbye word, what would that be? Yes, yes, yes. Finally, I want to say, uh, you mentioned my expertise in leadership. I want to say that there's always so much to learn. And as I said, the issue of leadership is correlated. Um, it's not about an individual so much. We try our best, yes, but we need to create leaders in everybody. And that is the ultimate ultimate impact you can make as a leader is to get others to understand they are also leaders in the space that they have, in the place that they have. So let them have initiative there. Let them have info, positive impact there. Let them not feel that they are followers. Let them do the best they can there. And they will keep on getting more and more responsibilities to do even more. Okay? I want to emphasize that so that the spotlight is not on me as the person at the apex of the organization, for example, but on the extent to which I can develop others to do the best they can where they are at and take up the leadership role there. I think that is so important. So the challenge is then to forget ourselves a little bit. Eh? We're not yes. the most important. We're the VIPs. They are the VVVIPs. Well <laughs> very, very, very important people. Yeah. So I want to emphasize that. It requires a little bit of forgetting self, a little bit of, I think you, it's called humility sometimes, which is not easy. The higher the title, the more difficult it is. You know, all these challenges leaders have. We leaders, eh? Very difficult. You have the best office in the building, so it's very difficult to be a bit humble sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's just be self-aware as leaders, eh? And, and realize that it's not about us. It's about all these people we're trying to develop. And we'll do well much said. better. Eh? Yeah, we'll do much better as organizations, yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Caesar. It's been great yeah. hearing your yeah. story. And I wish you success and all the best, even in Thank this you. season you are in at uh, Strathmore as Executive Dean. Thank you so much for your story. God yeah. bless Thank you. Thank you, George. You're doing, you're doing fantastic work yourself. I always say, when I, read, when I listen to your podcast, I mean, I learn so much from these wonderful people. Uh, really, just keep it up. Eh? This is real leadership, eh? if you ask me. That's what it is. Making a great impact. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All the best, my friend. Thank you for joining us in today's podcast. We hope you're leaving with insights that will help you live and lead better. We appreciate our sponsors, BNG Consultants Limited and BNG Center for Leadership Coaching for keeping us on air. Bye for now. See you in our next episode.